I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, producer Jonah Primo here and welcome to Principle of Charity, where we inject curiosity and generosity back into our conversation on big social issues. This is part two of our conversation on libertarian versus indigenous ways which is the better model for society? Now, in part one, our host, Emil Sherman, really teased out that question. So if you missed that, I really encourage you to press pause and go back to that last episode, have a listen, as it will contextualize what you're about to hear. For everyone else, today Lloyd is meeting our guests on the couch to ask some personal and edgy questions. Enjoy. Um, firstly, thank you both of you for that great conversation with Emil. Um, we normally start the on the couch section with asking each of you to talk about the three strongest points of the other, which is really what the principle of charity is. But I'm going to do something slightly different today. One of the things about the principle of charity is that we really focus on seeking to understand before we instinctively, and I'm now going to emphasize that word, instinctively reject the other so that our emotions are in check, um, uh, you know, our emotions aren't sort of dominant, but we have to be mindful of our instinct. John, I'm going to ask you first, when you were listening to Tyson, forget your brain, just focus on your feelings for the moment. What part of his argument did you feel instinctively rejecting of before you even try to understand it? Oh, um, I think we're going to disagree on lots of other issues, but I don't mm. think there were many issues that were at, at the fore of this conversation. But I, the reason I think we probably disagree on a lot of other issues is sometimes the way Tyson framed things or off-the-cuff comments about the way that financial systems work elsewhere. Uh, I think when I heard that, uh, I immediately thought, wait a second, I don't think that's uh, that's not the way that I understand the world to be. But then because that wasn't Tyson's point, he moved on to another point and it wasn't worth picking up a little sidetrack like that to, to quibble for this discussion. But those were the parts where I, uh, where I bristled. Good on you. Hang on. I, no, I didn't hear how he felt. This is talking about feeling. Well, that's true. That's true. But I, th- I thought I, s- I, I heard a bit of feeling in there as much as I could get out of it. Uh, right. right. Was I saying at the end, I, I bristled at the parts where you were talking about <laughs> the, the financial system at the side. I instinctively. Where did I you thought- feel that? Did you feel it on your neck hairs or your belly or where? Chest, face. Your face get hot? I was thinking more than feeling in this conversation because I feel on the spot oh, right. and there's a camera pointed at my face, so I feel the need to uh, uh, engage my, uh, my, my grey matter for this conversation more than my heart. Yeah, yeah, yep. How about you, Tyson? Where, where did, what, what did you feel? Yeah, no, war on drugs bit, I felt hot in the sides of my neck. But then I just realized that there's such a bigger context to that um, with very powerful bad actors. I mean, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. I'd have to go into it for freaking ages, mm. you know, but operating in Afghanistan and Latin America and that, you know, it's not really a black market even. Mm. You know, it's, um, it's, it's, it's quite 
under government control, all of that. Mm. And that looped me back around and going, oh, we're both thinking the same thing anyway, Mm. Uh, whether it's the broader context or the narrow one. Um, I always find these loops. I think at another stage I felt something uh, in around my diaphragm and a bit of a pounding in the old temples. I can't remember what bit that was. Um, but then when I zoomed out again, I could sort of see where it all fit in. Okay, good. We're going to come back to some of these feelings in a moment. What are the three arguments or the strongest arguments in favor, you believe, based on Tyson's conversation, in favor of the Indigenous Australian understanding of the individual's role in society? A couple of things that uh, Tyson said that uh, resonated with me, and I think there's a lot of value. And you mentioned here at one stage the idea that there is, there is a truth, but there are so many different perspectives. And the way I would say I put my economist hat on, I'm an economist by trade, it, there's lots of, everybody has access to lots of little pieces of information. No one really has access to all the information. So if you ask them what the truth is, they'll tell you the information they have, but that is not the mm. complete uh, amount of information. So if you want to get closer to finding the, the objective truth, which I suspect that humans will never be able to perfectly discover, but if you want to get closer to it, then what you need to do is find a good way of interconnecting all of those different people do in a way that uh, can cooperate and efficiently swap information with each other. I suspect Tyson and I would have a different suggestion for how that's done, but we're not on that part of the conversation. The point of that, lots of little pieces of information needing a good networking structure to get close to the truth, I think is really valuable and often, and often not seen. Uh, the other one, one of the points he was making at the end here, the need to balance autonomy and relatedness. And this goes a little bit to the conversation I was having with Emil earlier about the, the cliche that uh, the, the libertarian argues for um, radical individualism, which I don't think is true. They, they, we don't argue for that radical atomization. Uh, but this is what community does, right? And in community, if you get fully subsumed in the community, you lose that level of, of autonomy and autonomy matters. But if you act as uh, just in a log cabin without any interaction with humans, you really aren't living a full life. So the part of the the big trick to life, and this is more a moral question, I've got no political answer to it, is working out that need to balance autonomy uh, and relatedness and trying to work out which community structures and which governance structures can get you Mm. close to doing that well. Um, And there lies the rub. But I thought those two points were... um, well, I appreciate it. I also, I, I, get, I get to a third one here. You mentioned a bit before about the give-give economy. Uh, and I think it's sometimes, uh, sort of, I think in the broader structure, when you're trading with strangers, when I'm trading with some random, uh, you know, llama farmer in Bolivia, I'm probably not going to have a, a natural love-based give-give relationship with that person. I, mean, I, I don't know who they are. I can't speak his language. And so when you get into this international trade discussion, you can often have this perception that it's, it's just about markets and prices. And I think markets and prices are good things. But when you get to the local level, a more local level, that's not necessarily the best way to interact. When you're in your household, you don't actually charge your kids 20 cents for a bowl of uh, Cocoa Pops. I mean, we, we the, the more local the area in our family, we really see this. It really is a, a give-give, love-based, communitarian mm. solution. As you get bigger and bigger and have to deal with more and more strangers, the love-based situation doesn't work. But at the local level, and it doesn't just have to be the family, right? Your extended network, your community, you can have a very effective give give love based mm. interaction at those levels so i thought that was another powerful point okay. tyson from a charitable point of view um on a sort of charitable barometer 10 being the highest how did how did john do in reflecting some of your your views well i don't have to be charitable because because i'm in relation um I'm, a, I'm in relation with john as i am with everyone else so all, always seeking to strengthen connections rather than weaken them you know i i, I felt uh, like uh, an affinity with the Ostrom approach to um, Ostrom ideas around the commons. And also I, 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 I got a sense uh, in his descriptions of government that he um, 
has a pretty good grasp on the fact that representative democracy is just a way of promoting like the shittiest people to, to the top. <laughs> and they, of course, will be corrupted uh, by that model of governance. Mm. Uh, it's, it's a lawless model. And, um, and I feel that, I feel that with him and that, uh, that we both share a common sort of hatred of that model of uh, doing things and what it does to people and land and systems. What are the two or three strongest arguments you feel uh, John would have articulated in favour of the libertarian understanding of the individual's role in society? Everything except the sequence. It's, it's, we've basically just got a chicken and egg uh, uh, difference in epistemology here. You know, it, it's just, you know, he believes that the... The individual, uh, the individual comes first, and then the the systems are emergent from that. That will tend towards some kind of benevolent communitarianism, um, and I'm just the other way around. That's uh, that that's uh, that's in place first, and then the individuals emerge. Mm-hmm. I want to just take up on some of the issues that you know, you had in conversation with Emil and make it a little bit more here from an organizational as well as a personal point of view. John, I'm going to start with you as a libertarian. What is your personal obligation to others? When you walk around in Australia, I mean, in what way do you feel personally obliged or, or don't you? Yeah, I, my, my instinct was to quibble about the word obliged. I'm not sure. I mean, I've taken on obligations. I've taken on obligations to my family, my church, various community groups. Uh, so I, because I, I voluntarily took them on, I feel that I have an obligation to, to to live up to those. I also think, in terms of de- dealing with strangers, the just the the instinctive humanity is if there is a a low cost way to make other people's lives better. Um, I can't understand the instinct that would make people not take that. I think that's kind of where the concept of manners evolved. By the way, I mean mm-hmm. manners is such a low cost way of interacting with strangers, mm-hmm. but it can uh, significantly make it easier to be able to interact with them because it makes other people feel better about themselves. Uh, all of those little ones, uh, I think. The, in terms of more explicit charity, I've, I've kind of changed on this in the last couple of years. About um, 15 years ago, I set up a charity in in Cambodia, and it was targeted at some of the people I thought were the most in need in the world. I'd um, I was contrasting to the people telling me they were in need in Australia vis-a-vis the people in need in rural Cambodia, where I was at the time teaching economics as it was. Uh, And I thought, these are the people who need help. It wasn't my community, but it was a group of people in need and there was a a way I could help. And so I I invested time in that. And I still think that was a a valuable thing to do. But I, I am increasingly shifting to the idea that I think it's the colloquialism is charity starts at home, that I, I, I would like to do more for people in my sphere of influence. And these people might not be the ones that are most in need in the, in the global scheme of things, but these are the people in my community, in my neighborhood near, nearby, because I think I've, I've come to an appreciation that while doing charity in Cambodia helped people in need, I wasn't building a community. I wasn't becoming their friends, right? We, we weren't building interconnectedness and relatedness there. But in a local community, by being able to, to come together to help people in my direct vicinity, not only are you helping people, but I, I think that connection has more meaning, more meaning for them, more meaning for me. Uh, maybe I'm doing less net good per dollar spent, uh, but I think that building of community has a higher value than I had appreciated 15 years ago when I started my charity work. So just with this emphasis on voluntarism and your community, uh, I mean, that, that is, is the logical consequence, say, for a religious organization or, and I think you've spoken about this before, is that you would prefer church to not give to strangers but rather to focus on its own members? This is part of what I was saying before. This is the, the evolution I've had in terms of how I, 
uh, engage with with charity these days. I I'm more focusing on building the community. I think that is something that the church historically did quite well. Uh, and they misunderstood where the value was coming from to a degree. They thought the value was coming from because you put a dollar in the pocket of a needy person. But I think some of that value is coming from the interconnectedness of interacting with that person, both as mm. the giver and the receiver. And that community element isn't maximized when you're uh, sending that money to, mm. to halfway around the world to a person you'll never meet. Uh, but I, I can see both directions. I mean, there's a, also an argument, obviously, the one I had 15 years ago of you should go to the people most in need. I get that. But I, um, I, I think the role of church, the role of local communities, it's not just churches. Um, one of the important things they brought to society and one of the things I, I fear is diminishing to some degree in modern society is that connectedness. And I think that connectedness came from helping your neighbors. Hmm. Uh, and so I think there is uh, there would be a, a value in putting more of an emphasis on that. Tyson, if I can move over to you, I think you've spoken and used the word narcissism quite a lot in, in some of your previous podcasts that I was listening to. How would indigenous culture have dealt with narcissists? I mean, there must have been a bell curve of selfish people in indigenous communities who were very focused on themselves, who weren't particularly giving. Now, I'm not saying it was a large percentage, but there must have been some percentage. What was the response to them? Look, if you're out of relation, you just don't exist. If, if you're in a system where everybody is existing in a network mm. of relational obligations, um, you cease to exist as a person. It's not a very nice way to be. So you would be excommunicated. Is that what would happen? There are stories of that happening. Okay, our landscape is just full of rocks, creeks, you know, forests, all kinds of things, geological, topological features um, that have story. These are the these are monuments to narcissists, most of them, mm. you know, and, and their essence still lies within that hill or that rock, you know, or that valley. Um, every single one of them is a cautionary tale, usually about narcissists who've gone the wrong way. Now, in our system of law, if you get punished for something, you're not like cancelled forever, <laughs> you know, you you come back into good relation. So those those ancestors who went the wrong way, they stand forever um, as keepers of the law mm. that tell us not to behave in those ways. You know, so if somebody violates, you know, the consent protocols of, of being with a woman, for example, then um, that person uh, in our law is, is going to finish up as a, as a, as a, as a big rock with a, another part of that rock, which is his head lying over there because the bastard got it cut off, you know. You can't walk on country without walking those song lines and those stories, without being in that law. So it's very difficult to transgress. When you do transgress, it's difficult to continue with a habit of boundary violation. We don't get to do that frat boy thing. This feels to outsiders like a limitation on our freedoms, on our personal freedoms, etc. But no, you don't get to do that. You don't get to harm yourself or do things that are going to harm you because you're important and you're needed. You know, we, we had an earlier conversation in one of our podcasts on shame. So is shame a productive or, un, you know, non-productive uh, feeling or experience? And, you know, uh, the argument for shame, having shame, is that it forces people uh, to comply 
Uh, they mm. have to be much more careful about not complying. Would you, would you say that in some of the Indigenous culture there is a strong sense of shame because if you don't meet your relational obligations, mm. um, you will have that sense of shame? And by the way, by shame I mean not feeling good about yourself compared to guilt, yeah. which is not, you know feeling bad about something you've done. Shame is much more a sense of self. It's an ongoing debate in uh, evolutionary psychology and you know linguistic uh, relativism cultural relativism, all these things. It's an ongoing debate. But it's generally agreed that there's a there's a difference. There's those cultures that feel guilt and there's those mm. cultures that feel shame. Mm. And that guilt is an individualized phenomenon. That's what someone feels. Mm-hmm. And they're under no obligation to feel that. And a lot of sociopaths just don't. Uh, shame is different. It means you can have a sociopath, but shame is something that, that the entire group around that person feels together. Hmm. and and it, it it's a way that everybody can learn from that transgression and everybody can help uh, bring that person back to the right behaviours. And we do that by calling in, not calling out. So hmm. shame is something that's experienced and it's a, it's a punishment. It's pretty much the only traditional punishment, law punishment, that we're still allowed to do because we can't spear people in the leg anymore, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah, but that, that shame works. And, um, and then once you've, once you've gone through it, that ordeal, because it is an ordeal and your family goes through it with you, then you're clean, finished, mm-hmm. that's forgotten, mm-hmm. clean record. You know, so so shame shame could be really productive, and a lot of people think it's negative, but it works a lot uh, a lot more effectively, you know, uh, at scale than guilt does. Right. And I think that was a, that was one of the third thing that I, I I felt from John was this this sense that a, a lot of things don't work at scale. Uh, once once they go at scale, big government, etc., these things tend to be really inefficient and leave a lot of people behind. John, I want to come back to you. I, I am struck when you were talking about government, and I assume one of your arguments would be not to have high tax, you'd prefer low tax, if, if, if tax at all, maybe. And yet, empirically for me, and I'm not an economist, I go, the most successful countries, potentially economically, if you looked at the top 30, just from a GDP point of view, a lot of them would be high tax countries in Scandinavia, uh, Australia, Europe. If you looked at the index, forget the economic side, you just looked at happiness scores and however they evaluate it. A lot of those countries are highly regulated with lots of government. How do you explain that? Yeah, it's a good question. I think the, the one part of that is the order. Like, what was the order that happened there? Was it that you had a, a bunch of poor countries that then introduced a very big government and because of that they got rich? And I think you'll find that's not what happened anywhere. Or is do you find a, a poor country that discovered the virtue of, you know, voluntary trade between consenting adults, maximised the use of that effectively, uh, grew to become rich, and rich countries then start to have a, a... Normally, once you become rich, there starts to become a demand for democracy. Once you've got a democracy, you start getting in a bidding war, uh, a bidding war on future handouts. And so the incentive for anyone to get elected is always to exaggerate fear campaigns and promise people to give them things that you can't afford. I mean, that's the two tried and two true tested ways to to get and stay in power. Uh, and so you had countries embrace the market, then got rich, that gave an incentive to get democracy, and then a, a rich country can kind of sustain a higher tax rate because they're already rich, and you've now got a, a political incentive to continue asking and receiving more and more handouts which require more and more tax. Tyson, for you, the culture wars. How do you currently explain, from your perspective, the culture wars that are happening in in, in Western society? 
This isn't, you know, regular yarns like what we're having here. This isn't productive, you know, even debates. You know, these are, you know, very strategically manipulated moral panics. Yeah, these things are always moral panics that are manipulated by the powerful. Um, there's always lots of use, useful idiots that can be whistled in, you know, those dog whistles. Um, the aim in the end is to uh, motivate, highly motivated, a whole heap of disgruntled people who will be willing to do street violence for you uh, that you can use as a threat. Uh, Are you talking about terrorism? like can- cancel culture? Is that what you're uh, Cancel culture is, is a right-wing fucking phenomenon, man. Okay, so you look at the professor's watch list, you know, in the States. So anytime they feel like a professor is being too woke or isn't being Christian enough or whatever their bugbear is, you know, whatever the big, uh, you know, umbrella of, 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 you know, disgruntled bloody backlash against any kind of progress from the left, that, oh, this they're giving kids kitty litters in classrooms who, you know, think they're freaking, think they're cats, you know, bullshit like that. These people are easily manipulated by this stuff, which uh, is deliberately designed in very well-funded think tanks, uh, political action committees, all these sorts of things, you know, really well, well-funded uh, in order that people who want to stay in power and, and maintain corporatist power with little uh, regulation, people who want to establish uh, ethno-states, uh, white separatist movements, um, people who want to establish theocracies, uh, particularly in the United States. These people have very good researchers and really good algorithms out there to whistle in all the dogs for clicks. They know how far they can go. They know how to stretch the boundaries through humour and then eventually come back to this. So, sorry, are you saying that's a right-wing phenomenon or a left-wing phenomenon? Yeah, it's a right-wing phenomenon. Uh, like, okay, so cancel culture in its current form started with the uh, – it wasn't called cancelling originally. It was called being Dixie-chicked or being Donahue'd if you spoke out against the Iraq war. You know, that's how cancel culture began. Um, yeah, the left, you know, picked up uh, some of that uh, weaponized rhetoric from the right and, and, and started using it, but it's basically a right-wing phenomenon, and they do it heaps better than the left does. The left sucks at it. You know, that's why, like, every schoolboy and half the school boys and uh, schoolgirls in Australia are following Andrew Tate. You know, it's the whole idea is to produce an environment that is uh, coercive and keeping everyone stressed out with the threat of stochastic terrorism. If you decide to try and make a some kind of safe place socially for LGBTQI plus people or Jewish people or whatever the minority is. And you try and make some safe spaces for them. And, you know, it's very easy to manipulate a whole heap of disgruntled working class people who are willing to do street violence on your behalf. Mm. Gay nightclubs are shot up Mm. by people. Mosques are shot up by people. Mm. You can whistle in these dogs. And there's always, oh, that's just a lone wolf person, etc. But it's bullshit. The culture wars are bullshit. They're manipulated. They're very carefully orchestrated uh, moral panics, and they originate in the right, who is manipulated by very, very powerful billionaires who fund these political action committees and think tanks and uh, make all this stuff happen. It's very well documented. Follow the money. It's pretty clear, and it's there. Uh, We can all, you know, stop pretending now.
Elon just got caught out with their anti-Semitism mm. stuff and how planned that was around um, piggybacking that off advertising and how he was paid to do that. On that note, I'm going to make a more lighter version of this. So the game is net positive, net negative. If you can, just keep it to one line. All you have to say is net positive, net negative, and why. And uh, just have a go. This is free association. You're on the couch. John, I'll start with you. Rhino hunting. Rhino hunting. Uh, net negative. Why net negative? Uh, because I, uh, I, I don't have enough information about how many rhinos there are left and where they're living and what their situation is in. So I'm kind of going off the idea that if there may not be enough, the, the benefit from more people being able to interact with rhinos might exceed the utility benefits being received by the hunter in going out hunting. I've, I, do, okay. I do grant him a benefit from that. I don't discourage him having that, but I've got to add them all up. So adding them all up may be net negative. Tyson, over to you. Inheritance, that's, and I'm re- now referring family transfer of wealth to the next generation. Uh it only only works when it's communal and collective wealth. So it used to work before the Catholic Church uh, came in and changed things around, and they changed the laws so that only individuals could own wealth. Uh, community, uh, families and clans could not own wealth uh, in the collective because it was easier to get them to sign it over on their deathbed uh, to the church. Um, yeah. So inheritance stopped working in Europe at that exact moment. Uh, prior to that, yeah, sure. Okay, let's keep going. Uh, John, federally funded uh, intelligence agencies, e.g. CIA. Net negative. Why? Uh, I'm sceptical that they're actually bringing in information that uh, significantly changes our safety. I'll grant you they probably do some, but uh, I I think they have are so powerful now and have so many ways to mess with us that we wouldn't even know that I think it is unsafe to allow them to exist with this much power. And I don't know if you could actually shrink their amount of power without just abolishing them. Maybe you could start from scratch and try something new, but I'm kind of skeptical that you'll be able to build anything with that much power and keep the power in check. Okay. Tyson, the stock market. Stock market, uh, just more abstractions. Uh, Once again, it's moved from, um, from trading atoms to trading electrons. Um, in, into infinity. Are you giving it a positive or a negative? Yeah, oh, it sounds pretty fucking negative what I'm saying, yeah. Okay. John, trade unions. Uh, you, you hate nuanced answers here. The, the, uh, the concept, net positive, uh, their current uh, manifestation in Australia, net negative. Okay. Tyson, capitalism in China. Capitalism in China, it's, it's, it's probably working better than it is anywhere else in the world for them. Okay. John, Australian gun laws. Uh, probably roughly net neutral, but I'll go with net negative. Why? Uh, Long term, uh, every civilization collapses when ours collapses. I want the good guys to have guns. Okay. Tyson, meditation retreats. Horse shit. <laughs> you, you have to give us one more sentence. Give us a few words after that. <laughs> it's complete fucking horse shit. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, <laughs> oh, just a, a, a way for uh, privileged, indolent, bored pricks to, um, you know, feel like they're uplifting the consciousness of the world by uplifting their individual consciousness, which is pretty much the model for development and the self-terminating algorithm at the heart of this entire ridiculous global civilization. But Tyson, how do you really feel? <laughs> okay um one last question for both of you if you were to give each other something a document an article a book that you think would help the other see maybe your perspective in in a particular light john over to you what what document or book or article would you give to tyson oh 
I was going to say anything by Thomas Sowell. I, I don't know to what degree Tyson wants to go down economic rabbit holes, but if so, I'd recommend iPencil. iPencil. Tell us about it. iPencil is the, the story that no one knows how to make a pencil. It's all of the information needed to make a pencil is spread between thousands of strangers who don't know each other, can't speak each other's language, perhaps don't even like each other or wouldn't if they met each other. And all of these people somehow coordinate through some magical mechanism, let's call it the price mechanism, uh, to come together and coordinate thousands of people across the world and make a pencil for less than a dollar. Uh, there is some insane coordinating process going on that is a fundamental driving force for good in the world, mm. and it is whatever the driving force is behind allowing thousands of strangers to coordinate that efficiently. Fantastic. Tyson, how about you? If you shared a book or an article? I, I'd give him a, a different text, a cultural text. i give him a big war, war boomerang that I have. It's, it's so big and, and such hardwood it could cut a man in half. But uh, under our law, you know, you put like a tiny little handle on it and that handle's pretty weak. So you can't kill too many people with that. So that regulatory mechanism is in place. Mm. You have this beautiful, mm. big, deadly thing, but it can't be weaponized and scaled to the point where, that you're going to do an imperialism. So the law is built into the affordances of your material culture. Yeah, I, I'd let him sit with that for a bit. And if you were to give me such a boomerang, I would happily take it. <laughs> <laughs> totally. I, okay. I might have to throw it to you hey <laughs> if you enjoyed today's conversation please rate us and leave a review that is simply the best way to support the show and help it grow we'll see you soon for more principle of charity but first a word from our partners the ethics center is an independent not-for-profit that for over 30 years has advocated for a more ethical society through all our work, we bring people together, create space for difficult conversations, and encourage all to live and act according to their values. Check out our website for free access to articles, podcasts, and videos that unpack the complexities of everyday life at www.ethics.org.au. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.